Thank you to Wally and Phil and Becky for that opening. So, yes, we're going to continue looking at some portraits from Proverbs this morning. And when I first realized what my topic was going to be, I was wondering if there's a hint, and maybe I need to take a closer look at my own life. As we look at some of the characteristics or trait related to this portrait, you may see some things in your own life that you have or should put behind you as well. So by way, this morning, we'll be looking at some characteristics or tendencies that Wally made sure that you knew. Can you get back here for a sec? That illustrate Portrait of the Foolish. <laughs> I, I should uh, note, um, I guess, when the, the speaking assignments for this last series came out, we got a couple of us, Bruce and I got an email from Carrie Gino and he said, uh, hey, I see what you're speaking on. I've got a picture for you. And when you open it up, it's a picture of Carrie. And we weren't sure which sermon we're going to use it for. But I think uh, this one's quite fitting for, for me anyway. Let's just open with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we do just pause and just thank you for your goodness and love. Father, we just marvel that the God who created the heavens and the earth loves us so much and cares for us. Thank you for your Son, for your Spirit, and for your Word that we can open this morning. Help us all, Father, as we just look into your Word, just to apply it to our lives, that we would just grow in your grace and your knowledge and in your love. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the characteristics, the characteristics of the foolish from my outline include anger, folly, fools and foolishness, covetousness and envy, gluttony and drunkenness, and seduction. I'm going to take a bit of a shortcut when I'm quoting some verses this morning. So if you hear me just give you a chapter and verse, it's from Proverbs. Otherwise, I'll let you know what reference the book comes from. So the, the first characteristic or trait that we're going to look at is anger. I think we all have an idea of what anger is. In the Bible, the same word translated anger is sometimes translated as wrath. Proverbs 12.6 says, A fool's wrath is presently known. Sometimes it's referred to as that person's temper. For example, 14.17, a man of quick temper acts foolishly and a man of evil desires is hated. Being around someone who's always angry isn't necessarily a good thing, not healthy, and we're warned about this in Proverbs. 21.19 says, it is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. But it's not just the women, is it? 29.22, an angry man stirs up dissension and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. Sometimes anger is driven by pride. 21-24, proud and haughty scorner is his name, who deals in proud wrath. In other words, some feel justified in going out and acting on their anger, because the end justifies the means. There seems to be an increasing attitude, maybe a prevailing attitude in society now, that it's not about turning the other cheek. It's, about, it's not about forgiving someone who wronged us. 
It's about getting even. It's about punishing them. And maybe it's just me. When I look at the news or hear the news, there seems to be a real and real scary increase in things like road rage, assaults, and the like. And it seems that some are trying to create a new societal norm where it's not just the person's right to get even, it's their responsibility to get even. Isn't this how feuds and wars begin? We learn from Psalm 145, verse 8, that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. And so should we be. The Bible tells us that such behavior helps us keep the peace. For example, 15.1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 15.18 says, Hot tempers start fights. A calm, cool spirit keeps the peace. The next trait or characteristic in our portrait of foolish relates to people's willful behaviors and actions. And so we'll look at some proverbs that speak to fools, foolishness, and folly. Now, there are a couple of different words that are translated fool in the Bible. I certainly don't profess to understand the full meaning or implications of them both. One is linked to a person's behavior and attitude where a person despises wisdom, mocks when they're guilty, is argumentative or picks fights, and or lacks legal or moral restraints, especially when it comes to sexual behavior. Another word translated fool is tied a bit more to a person's intellectual state and their willingness or openness to be taught spiritual matters. The two aren't mutually exclusive, and I think many of us can apply, can apply, me for sure, can apply either of those words to ourselves in different circumstances. A few weeks ago, David Hook introduced us to the book of Proverbs and noted the Proverbs in general highlight our need to fear the Lord. The overall purpose of the Proverbs includes teaching people wisdom and discipline to live disciplined and successful lives to help them do what is just, right, and fair. We read about the wisdom we need in that this morning, didn't we? The first reference we'll look at is found in 1.7. And we read that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, the fool refuses to hear and apply God's word. Again, sometimes it's a person's pride and their conceit that prevent them from gaining wisdom. For example, 26.12, Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Sometimes it's because people want to do whatever they want to do and don't want to be told otherwise. Sometimes they challenge the notion that there are eternal consequences to our decisions in life. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. 14.9 says, Fools mock at making amends for sin. We know we can't take sin lightly, and neither does God. When the consequences of poor decisions catch up, some have a tendency to blame someone else instead of acknowledging their own part or maybe the fact that they were totally responsible for whatever happened. And it's interesting that some who don't believe in God, or who certainly aren't following him all the time, uh, take the chance to blame him when things go wrong. 
19.3 says, When a man's folly, or in other words, when a man's foolishness brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Go figure. You told me I didn't listen, but it's your fault. The consequences of taking sin lightly are pretty scary, aren't they? 5.23 says, He shall die without instruction. In other words, or for lack of discipline. And in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. Now the Proverbs do provide instructions if we're open to learning and following. For example, 12.15. The way of the fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. 28.26 says, He who trusts in himself is a fool. On the other hand, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. We need to put our trust in, our, in the Lord. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai, the Lord spoke to him and sent him back down to the people with ten commandments, including this one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. From Exodus 20.17. I'm not sure how many of us tend to use the word covet all the time anymore. It is the word that's found in most of the translations that I looked through. A similar verse in Deuteronomy uses the word desire instead of covet. In other words, we're not to set our hearts on what someone else has. We're not to desire those things. We're not to look for those things. That shouldn't be what drives us. 21.25 says, The desire of a lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. Just as we shouldn't covet, neither should we be setting our hearts on things or on people that are around us. 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy, sometimes translated as jealousy or passion, has been referred to as the disease of the soul. The world seems to be full of people who have it all. Money, fame, power, control over their circumstances. But we aren't to be envious or jealous of sinners, in this case people who don't know or aren't following God. It's easy to see and wish we think or easy to see and wish what other people have and think, gee, wouldn't that be just so nice if only our society certainly finds ways to honor those who takes what it does who does who do what it takes to get ahead who go and have reached that pinnacle of success. And many of those people seem happy. Maybe some of them truly are. I would suggest to you that many are truly unhappy and know that there's something missing in their lives. They're just, I'm close, but I just got to get one more thing. 23.17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There's surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Now, wanting what others desire is certainly, or what others have, is certainly not a new phenomenon. The Israelites disobeyed God to the point where He had enough, and He had them taken to Netherland as captives. They were forcibly displaced. The prophet Jeremiah told them, however, that God had a plan for them. From Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you 
and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Likewise, if you're feeling a bit envious of others, we need to remember God has an amazing plan for our lives as well, doesn't he? He wants us to put our trust in him, to set our sights on the hope and the future that he has in store for us. Not the things that we don't have, not the things others have. God has provided us numerous reminders that he'll give us everything we need in this life. And he is everything we should want in this life. He's given us an example and a guide through his son and through his spirit. He guides us. Jesus offers us forgiveness. He offers us a relationship. And he offers us an eternity with God in heaven when we leave this earth. Just when we were singing this morning, there was a, a verse in one of those songs I'd never noticed before about uh, heaven and getting there sooner. And indeed, none of us know when that day is going to come. Uh, no matter how old we are, we're all a day closer to that time when we're going to get called. And I trust that we'll all be ready. In the meantime, we need to look forward to the blessings that God has in store for us. Blessings that were alluded to in the songs we sung this morning. Coveting and envy make us focus on things that we shouldn't set our hearts on. We shouldn't be preoccupied with something or someone that belongs to another. Nor do we, should we be envious of others who put themselves up on that pedestal. Unfortunately, sometimes we care too much about what others have, too much about their apparent success, and focus on our efforts just to be like them and to seek the kind of possessions they have, don't we? I'm not being greedy, but I just want a little bit more. Our sense of self, our self-worth, shouldn't be based on what we have, but should be based on who we are, particularly who we are in Jesus, in the Lord. The next characteristic or traits that I'm going to look at include gluttony and drunkenness. 23, 20, 21 says, Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkens and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. 23, 29 Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, those who go to sample bowls of mixed wine, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. You'll be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you'll say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When can I wake up so I can find another drink? In Canaan, red wine was looked upon as the best wine and was called the blood of the grape. Looks, smells, and to some, tastes really good. Too much of it, though, is problematic. For some, wine, or rather drink, overtakes their lives. It's an escape from reality. For some, it becomes an addiction. Some people are happy when they drink. Some are rude and obnoxious. Been there, done that. 
When one's life revolves around the drink or the party, problems are usually close behind. Proverbs 25 and 16 says, If you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it and you will vomit. I love going to all those all-you-can-eat places. I don't know about you. If I have to list my favorite restaurants, that's one of the criteria in, in a good one. You get to eat a bit of all the foods you enjoy. And then you get to go back and enjoy them all over again. And sometimes you have to go back and take a little more before you have dessert, right? Now, I can't say that I've worn sweatpants to any of these places just to, to keep eating. But I certainly found myself not sleeping so well at night because I overate the day before. And I think my metabolism has finally caught up with me. And so now I've got to pay a little more attention to what and how much I eat. I'm not sure I like this part about getting older, even if it helps moderate my portions. And I would suggest to you, it's not just about eating and drinking too much at one meal. It's about making a habit of overindulging or seeking to spend all your time and money and efforts on having the best and the finest foods all times. Because that becomes an end in itself. As my father-in-law used to say, all things in moderation. Where's Joe and Joanne? Do I, do I place my order for how many hamburgers I want at the corn roast now? Or? I guess I... Okay. I, I guess uh, I'll have to watch my portion over there. The last trait in our portrait of the foolish is seduction. To seduce or entice someone in this context is to persuade or deceive them to get them to do something that gets them off the narrow path that Christians are called to follow. 12.26 says, The righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduces them. In other words, leads them astray. Two examples of this, one from Proverbs 1, 10 to 17. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie and wait for someone's blood. Let's waylay some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and the hole, like those who go down to the pit. We'll get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Throw your lot in with us and we'll share a common purse. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their path, for their feet rush into sin. sin. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And how useless it is to spread a net in full view of all the birds. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. Such is the end who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. From 520... Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. From this we see that seduction can refer to both things and people. In a way, it's like acting on that covetousness or desire that we shouldn't be following. Following through on the seduction leads to immoral or illegal behaviors at times. And we know that the Lord sees everything. And we know that, as it says here, it leads to destruction if not addressed. 
So the portrait of the foolish that we've been looking at isn't so flattering, is it? It's about pride and conceit in one's own knowledge and abilities. It's about arrogance and not being willing to listen to what God has to say. Not hearing, not being willing to hear and apply the advice. It's about chasing and living for what appears to be pleasure in life, the sensual things in life. Sometimes through immoral or illegal means, sometimes making this pursuit the sole purpose for their being. Most notably, the characteristics are reflective of someone who's living for themselves with no thought to the God who created and who loves them. It's all about me, me, and me. This is what Jesus had to say about these kind of behaviors and attitudes from Mark 7, starting in verse 20. And he, that is Jesus, said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things... All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So let's look at the same characteristics through a slightly different lens. What does the Bible have to say about some of these things? The word anger, as it applies to us, tends to focus on our personal feelings. The ability to feel anger is part of our nature. And we often feel we have the right to be angry, the right to be upset at others. Sometimes we want to get even with them for things they've done. It's all about you, it's all about me, right? In Romans twelve seventeen, Paul writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. In Ephesians 4, 26-27, we read, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Then Paul goes on to say, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Wouldn't it be great if instead of the fights, people would actually just apologize and forgive each other? And you don't have to act out on your anger for it to be problematic. In Matthew 5.21, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Anger, as it applies to God, though, is the response of a perfect, holy God and his response to sin. So when God reads, acts out on his anger, we generally read about his wrath. The same word, translated anger in the Old Testament, is often translated wrath in the New Testament. In this case, God's reaction to those who oppose him. The Apostle Paul wrote, wrote about God's wrath and the appropriate response to God's proposed settlement in his letter to the Romans. And we'll just look at a few verses for a moment. 
1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 2 and 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth, obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Three and twenty-three says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received how in faith. Can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't buy it. There's nothing we can do. It's only through faith. For while we're still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will someone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? That righteous anger of God. We've all, fall, we've all sinned and all fallen short. The standard is perfection. None of us can meet it. Jesus died so we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God that each of us deserves. And we can only receive this incredible gift through faith. In a nutshell, that's the gospel message, isn't it? However, we read that in 1 Corinthians 18, it says, The message of the cross, that gospel message, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Down to verse 25, The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. What, does, what else does it say about seduction? Matthew 25 and 7, Jesus said, You've heard it said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, you don't have to follow through on the action to be falling short, to have committed that sin. And I think that goes two ways. It's not just for the guys, it's for the ladies. What about some of these other ones? Covetousness. Envy, drunkenness, gluttony. In Galatians 5, we're told that we're called to be free, but not to use that freedom to indulge our sinful nature, rather to serve one another in love. 19.21 says, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness and orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its desires and passions. 
The one exception that you find to coveting is where we're told in 1 Corinthians to covet or desire the best spiritual gifts, the blessings. So to sum up these verses, God wants us to turn away from those characteristics or those traits that make up the portrait of the foolish. He loves each of us so much, so much, that he sent his son to die for each of us. To pay the price for our sin, to take God's righteous anger, his wrath, upon himself. As we've read, we've all fallen short and deserve that. He wants to be in a personal, a loving relationship with each of us. And we get there by acknowledging our need for his forgiveness and putting our trust in Jesus as our own Savior and Lord. It's not about ourselves. It's about letting him lead the way. I should say, I don't think we always fully understand or get the instructions or the directions that we get sometimes through the Bible and that the Spirit tries to teach us. But sometimes we stumble as we go forward. The key, though, is to follow and to focus on Him and keep walking towards Him. Indeed, it's my prayer that nobody leaves here this morning without Jesus. Everyone can sing happy day and truly know what it's like that day Jesus washed your sins away. If you're at this place where, you know, this seems, still seems like foolishness to you, you don't have a clue what this guy at the front is talking about, I'd love to talk with you later. If you're at the point where you think, you know what, I need to trust in the Lord Jesus, I'm not sure how, please come talk to me or others. And if you just want to talk and if you think the message is on the mark or off the mark, that's fine too. If you want to talk, you know where to find me. Let's just close with a few verses from Colossians. Starting uh, chapter three, twelve. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'd ask Wally and Phil and Becky if they'd come up and we'll have uh, one closing song. Heavenly Father, indeed, we need to remember that it is all about you. That you want us to be in that personal relationship with you and we just thank you for that. Help us, Father, just to walk closer to you, to understand and to follow your directions for our lives. Indeed, Father, I pray that no one would leave here without Jesus, that all of us can sing that song, Happy Day, and remember that day when he came into our lives, when we accepted him in our lives. Help us, Father, as we depart, just to keep you in mind and just to live our lives in a way that would honor and glorify you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.